Our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge with great thanksgiving your great grace shown to us through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We acknowledge as well, Lord God, that in our effort to follow him and to serve him and to say truly not our will but your will be done, there are times when we set that aside and we insist on having our way. And when we do that, we sin. And we ask, O oh Lord God, your forgiveness when our selfishness and pride get in the way of our witness and our obedience to you. So, Father, for that unkind word that we have spoken to our husband or our wife, for that <clears throat> disrespect that we have shown to our parents, for those thoughts, O oh Lord God, that tend to invade and then settle in our heart and mind where we seek retribution and even a measure of vengeance that is not ours to take, we ask your forgiveness. For the lust, O Lord God, that still resides within our heart, whether it's a lust for, for money, for control, to possess that which we are not permitted to until, uh, Lord God, it causes us to... Uh, to act upon it, we ask your forgiveness. We ask forgiveness, Lord God, for the moments when we doubt your love and faithfulness to us, when we question your love for us, when we overlook the very blessings of life that you have given to us, a, a place to live, a place to work, food, shelter, and clothing. We take these things for granted, O oh Lord God, and how much are we like the children of Israel who, after having been rescued and redeemed, we turn to you and say, but can you give us more? And so we ask your forgiveness, O Lord God. And in knowing that, we also take great comfort in the words of the apostle when he tells us that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that we have an everlasting advocate with our God and Father who is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so, Father, we stand now forgiven, cleansed forever by his blood. And so we would ask, O oh Lord God, that you would continue uh, to show those of us who are in uh, error the light of your truth, that we may not only continue in the way of righteousness, but practice it always. And to grant all those who are admitted into the fellowship of Christ's own fellowship, to reject those things that are contrary to our profession of faith, to follow all those things which are agreeable to our faith. Father, this we ask and pray uh, through and in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to read through Zechariah 6 as we work our way through this, uh, this chapter, uh, this uh, book rather, and we come to, depending upon which uh, tack you take. This is either the, the last vision, uh, the eighth vision, or the, the seventh. I'm going to approach it as the seventh vision, uh, and I don't need to explain that, but I'll just leave it at that. We're going to look at verses 1 to 8. I'll read verses 1 through 15 to set the context, but then we'll, we'll dive in uh, to discuss chapters one, uh, verses 1 through 8. So the prophet writes as follows. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold... Four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, 
the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out uh, to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country, the white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth, and he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. And the word of the Lord came to me, Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold, and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, For he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hain, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. There's a lot uh, there uh, to unpack. Uh, If you have been uh, paying attention to the news, um, you know that since it began nearly three weeks ago, Uh, Russia's war against Ukraine has uh, dominated uh, the news. When Russia's aggression uh, has intensified, the death toll continues to rise, and the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine worsens. So far, uh, the United States and its NATO allies, rather than risk any kind of direct military involvement in that conflict, have uh, gone the route of imposing economic sanctions on Russia in the hope that they will stop Uh, Russia's aggression, and we can continue to pray for that as well. You think about what's going on there, and you think about other kinds of conflicts, wars especially, and it strikes us, I think, as something unjust when uh, a larger nation attacks a smaller nation without cause, especially when the larger nation possesses overwhelming advantages in terms of military weapons, military personnel, and resources. We've seen the the news footage, I'm sure, of the bombed-out buildings, the bombed-out hospitals, people being carried out on stretchers, people hiding out in subway stations, refugees fleeing the country. And those images stir something within us emotionally. There's a visceral reaction that we have that creates in us the desire to seek vengeance and retribution and justice, if if not against the, the president of Russia, certainly against the military for inflicting that kind of harm. If that has been your experience, understand that that desire, that want for vengeance and retribution and justice, that those feelings will help us understand and interpret this seventh vision in Zechariah. 
God may have returned Israel to their homeland, but her enemies still have the upper hand. They are essentially still refugees, even in their own country. And they have been sent there, certainly by decree of Cyrus of Persia, at the motivation of God and fulfillment of prophecy. But Persia still remains, and Babylon as well, both stronger, both militarily and economically and humanly speaking, they still have the power to dictate Israel's future. However, as we will see, things are not as they appear. The day is coming, according to this vision, when God will turn the tide and make things right. The day is coming when God will indeed bring vengeance, retribution, and justice upon Israel's enemies. The day is coming when God will vindicate his people by completely fulfilling the promise that he made to them through Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 29, 10, and 11. Go back there and you look at Jeremiah 29, you see that the Babylonian army is about to sack the city of Jerusalem. They have broken through the walls and is going to take the inhabitants of the city into exile, into Babylon. And the Lord then speaks through the prophet saying these words, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this land. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So any interpretation of Zechariah 6, 1 through 8, must start with the understanding that as far as this prophecy is concerned, God has kept his promise. The 70 years for Babylon are complete. He has brought his people back. To Jerusalem. He has also returned to them. That's the meaning of the first vision in Zechariah 1, 7 to 17. And then having returned to Jerusalem, God promises then to plunder the nations that plundered his people. That's the meaning of the second vision in chapter 2. To ensure again that Israel will never again or Jerusalem will never again be invaded by a conquering army, God promises to surround the city like a wall of fire and to be the glory in their midst. That is the, uh, that is the, the, vision, uh, the third vision in chapter 2. Um, the meaning of the, of the fourth vision in Zechariah 3 is that now having guaranteed protection for the city, being the glory in its midst, God restores the priesthood and the dignity and the honor of that. And with the priesthood restored, God then appoints Arubabel as the king who will rebuild the temple and reestablish Israel's identity as a religious and national place. That's the meaning of the fourth vision, Zechariah 4. And since a holy God must have a holy people, God then punishes, promises to punish those who continue to sin against his covenant as well as to send their iniquity back to Babylon, iniquity personified as the woman in the basket. That's the meaning of the sixth vision. So by the time we arrive at this seventh vision, we understand then that each of these visions has a pastoral purpose. That is to remind Israel that God will eliminate evil forever, and he will establish his reign and rule on earth through a people 
who bear his name. That's the, the reminder, the encouragement that God is in fact going to eliminate evil forever. He is going to establish his kingdom and he's going to do it through a people that bear his name. And the soil then from which this promise, this purpose grows out is really an answer to the question that is asked way back in chapter 1, verse 12. There the angel of the Lord asks, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, which you have been angry with these 70 years? This seventh vision is God's answer to that question. The 70 years for Babylon are completed, and in the words of Isaiah 40, verse 2, the time has come to speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God has pardoned Israel by returning her back to Jerusalem. He will now answer their cry for mercy. He will bring vengeance, retribution, and justice upon her enemies. And he will do so by sending out the chariots of his wrath to punish the nations who have punished his people. So there's the big idea then for this message. God answers our cry for mercy by taking vengeance upon our enemies. And vengeance belongs to God because he is the just and glorious judge. And then the satisfaction of God's Vengeance puts his spirit at rest. It's always difficult to talk about the judgment of God because it creates an image of him that, it, while true, is also troubling for us. But it's not meant to be troubling as much as it is to be a comfort. That our cry for mercy, our cry for God to put things right, is not a cry that is unanswered, unheeded forever. There is a reason why God forestalls the demonstration of his mercy and his judgment. We'll see that in just a moment. But vengeance ultimately belongs to him because he alone is the just and glorious judge. The vision that begins here in, in, uh, in verse 1, where the, the prophet writes, I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were made of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, and all of them strong, all of them powerful. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered me and said, These are going out to the four winds of heaven, after presenting themselves before the Lord of, lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country, the white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. The vision is similar to the one in chapter 1 in this respect. There are four horses. But where are, there are four horses and riders in the first vision, here there are four chariots pulled by four horses. And they emerge, they come out from between two mountains of bronze. We know that horses back in Zechariah's day served an important purpose militarily. First for reconnaissance and gathering intelligence, but they're also used to pull chariots. And he sees these horses pulling chariots coming out from between two mountains of bronze because the time for gathering intelligence is over. Now it's time for the Lord of all the earth to go to war. Now why chariots? What's the imagery there? 
Well, very simply, in Zechariah's day, chariots were the ultimate military weapon. You had a driver, and then along with the driver was an archer. And he could move swiftly through the battlefield. And a good archer could fire off 12, 14 arrows in less than a minute. The good ones even less than that. Now, why mountains? Why does he see mountains? Well, again, back in the day, back in Zechariah's time, mountains is where you built shrines and temples to your gods. You, even uh, in Jerusalem, is on a mountain. Right? The, the pilgrims would go to Mount Zion. They would go up Mount Zion to worship him. The Lord himself is said to dwell on Mount Zion. But why are the mountains made of bronze? Well, again, because in, in Zechariah's day, <coughs> bronze symbolized strength, power, and invincibility. Some of you, if, if you who know your Bible well, you're already going way ahead of me into uh, John's vision of Jesus in Revelation 1, where the apostle sees a vision of the risen and glorified Christ, hair white like wool, eyes aflame of fire, golden sash on his long robe, and then John describes Jesus' feet as being like burnished bronze, symbolizing strength, power, and invincibility. No one can stop the Lord from accomplishing his purpose. So that's one reason why the mountains are made in bronze. The second reason is bronze would reflect sunlight in a brilliant way. And in Babylonian mythology, it is believed that the sun god would rise every morning and emerge from the mountains. And then lastly, and most importantly, according to 1 Kings 7, 13 and following, the two huge pillars that Solomon erected in the uh, temple that he built were made of solid bronze. And so you have this idea that Zechariah, remember, as well as his fellow returnees, were likely all born in Babylon, likely grew up, steeped and surrounded by Babylonian and uh, culture and religion. Moreover, he and they have no physical memory of Solomon's temple. All they have seen in their lives have been the temples and shrines built by the Babylonians and the Persians and the Medes to their gods and goddesses. And so knowing this, God accommodates himself to Zechariah's understanding in his own cultural context. So he uses imagery that Zechariah and his audience will understand, while at the same time declaring God's absolute majesty, power, and sovereignty over the world. So the Babylonians would look to the mountains to see the sun god coming from them, and what Zechariah sees is, no, 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 that's not the sun god of the Babylonians rising over those mountains. That is the Lord of all the earth who rises from those mountains, and from those mountains then emerged the, the, the bronze representing the pillars of the temple. These chariots, once they emerge, they symbolize that they come from the very presence of God, representing his absolute strength, power, and majesty over the world that he created, that he is the eternal and invincible Lord of heaven's, of heaven's armies, that, he, that neither king nor kingdom, emperor nor empire, nor ruler, nor government is going to be able to escape his vengeance, elude his retribution, or evade his justice. 
The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in other words, is the sovereign Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere present. He is omniscient. He knows everything. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. His authority extends beyond the borders of any country. His might exceeds the power of any nation because back then, the nations who worshipped idols believed that their God was powerful only within the territory of their own country. So what do you do when you go to battle against another nation? You can't leave your God home. You take him and you carry him with you into battle because he's got to go with you. The difference between the Lord of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is there's no idol to carry because he is everywhere present. And so the communication to Zechariah is, the gods that you see, Zechariah, the gods that, you're, that you see people worship and bow down to, are nothing. Because they're, if they had any authority, it's simply confined, confined to the area of their own geography. The mountains where the pagans would worship their idols are the very mountains from which the Lord of heaven's armies will send out his chariots of wrath to judge the nations for their idolatry. The other thing, too, is the reason why God is going to judge the nations is not simply because of their own idolatry and rebellion, but because they themselves have exceeded their mandate as God's instruments of justice against his people. Remember, God sent the Babylonians, he sent the Medes, he sent the Persians to punish Israel and Judah for their disobedience. But in doing so, they exceeded their mandate by their own cruelty toward God's people. And so there's another reason why he is punishing them. You'll notice, too, that in the vision, the, the chariots only go in two directions. Why is that? Well, it's likely because those are the locations of the countries that have harmed Israel the most. Babylon and Persia in the north, Egypt in the south. The chariot with the black horses go north, the white horses go after them, and the dappled horses go south. Where are the red horses? They stay in the presence of the Lord, likely because the rider, the driver of that chariot, like the rider of the red horse in the first vision, is the one who's directing all of the activity, all of the battle. Now, that's unpacking the vision. The bigger question for us, the most important question for us, what does it all mean? Right? How does that affect the way that we live? What does that say to us now? Well, very simply, it, it means indirectly, vengeance belongs to God because he is the just and glorious judge. In other words, because God, because vengeance belongs to the Lord, we are now set free to follow what Paul says in Romans 12, 17 to 21. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, 
Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is the counterintuitive nature of the gospel. That because we know God is going to make all things right at a date of his own choosing, at a time of his own setting and determination, because we can trust God to set things right, to take vengeance, exercise retribution, and to do justice on our behalf and on behalf of his own glory, our responsibility then is to love our neighbor as ourselves. To leave to the wrath of God the just judgment of those who have wronged us. That's counterintuitive to our own way of thinking contrary to the work of the gospel and the spirit in our lives to change our hearts. Because vengeance belongs to God means I, we have reason then to persevere under trial because we know a day is coming when God will make all things right. Vengeance belongs to God means that we can focus then on serving God in the present because God will keep his promise to give us a hope and a future. Vengeance belongs to God means that we can follow Peter's counsel in 2 Peter 3, 11 and 12. Where after, in that third chapter of 2 Peter, he talks about the, the coming consummation of the age and all that will end with the world. Peter says, if you know all that, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, he says, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God? In other words, focus on living a holy life, loving God, loving your wife, loving your family, loving your neighbor, and leave to God the ultimate judgment. I debated whether or not I would, it would, I would include this in the sermon, but I, I'm going to take the risk. When I read this, I mean, I, just on a personal note, I remember when I worked uh, as a janitor for uh, the church in Brooklyn, it bothered me no end that people put their trash in the street. When there was a trash basket, like back in the days when there were trash baskets in New York, before they stole them all, they were like chained to the light post. And they would, there it was, and yet there's a bottle, there's, and, and I would just get very angry about that. Why? Because they were somehow offending my sense of morality and decency and obedience and cleanliness. What makes a Karen a Karen? Right? What makes a legalist a legalist? What makes a Pharisee a Pharisee? It's because someone somewhere has offended their sense of morality, decency, and the moral good. And we as Christians, we fall into that. There's a, there is a time for righteous indignation, but for most of us, it's just somehow we easily fall into a legalistic mindset. And we set up a very us-and-them mentality. Whether it's in our home, or in our families, or at work, or in our communities. The instruction of leaving vengeance to God allows us not to sweat those details. Now, I understand that on one level, there are serious offenses that people commit against one another. Violence, abuse, I understand that. 
Zechariah is not addressing that. He's looking at it, the big picture. He look, he's looking at, at a sort of a high level. It's the same in terms of when, at the end of John's Gospel, Peter uh, is restored into fellowship by Jesus. And then, as Jesus is talking with Peter, Peter sort of glances over and sees John, the beloved disciple. And he asks Jesus, well, okay, what about him? And Jesus says, here's none of your concern. You follow me. What about those people who put trash in the street, Lord? Don't worry about them. You pick up the trash, put it in the basket. You live a holy life. You do right by me and your neighbor. You let me worry about them. You live that kind of life, understanding then that vengeance belongs to God means we can follow Peter's exhortation by following Paul's encouragement in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 to 12. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with our own hands that we may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. It means taking to heart the command that's given by James in chapter 5. You read James chapter 5, the opening verses of James 5, verses 1 to 6, he excoriates the rich in his community. He takes them to task for abusing the poor by withholding wages that are justly earned and due. And he just takes them up and down. And then, beginning in verse 7, it's as if he's sort of you know, looking at the rich part of town, yelling out the church window at the rich, Woe to you, O rich! He then turns to his congregation and he says, But brothers, be patient. Until the coming of the Lord. Do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. In the long run, it doesn't matter how Bill Gates or Jeff... Uh, Bezos or Zuckerberg or Warren Buffett or any other Instagram wannabe influencer lives their life. What matters is we be patient, we live lives of holiness, we aspire to follow Christ as faithfully and as dutifully and obediently as we can. Vengeance belongs to God means I can forgive the sins of those who sin against me. It's the whole heart of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, that I don't have to seek retribution for every wrong that's committed against me. I've had a lot of my, you know, some of you know, Jill's been away this, uh, she's watching our grandkids, so I've had a lot, some time in the evenings to do uh, things that I, I, you know, together that she doesn't like. So she doesn't like the Godfather movies. So I watched all three of them. And the one thing that comes clear in watching the Godfather movies is, such a concern for respect. Right? You show me no respect. Right? And because you show me no respect, I'm going to kill you and your family. Right? You show me no respect, I'm going to gossip about you. You show me no respect, I'm going to make trouble for you. You show me no respect, and you retaliate. This says don't do that. Forgive. And if the person who has indeed honestly and truly treated you with disrespect, leave their discipline to God. You, who have been wrong, are called to forgive. 
and then move on. That relationship may never be repaired. But you can still forgive and you can still walk in that forgiveness. And you can wait and be patient for God to, and you can even pray for that person that God would turn their heart. That means, so that, that's really what vengeance for God means as well, that we can love our enemies and pray for them because we know if they don't repent, particularly if they don't know Christ, and especially if they don't know Christ, our God is a consuming fire, and it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It also means, vengeance belongs to God, that I have two reasons now to love my neighbor, especially my unsaved neighbor. I'm to love my unsaved neighbor because when I was God's enemy, Christ died for me. And second, I am to love my neighbor, especially my unsaved neighbor, because knowing that Jesus endured the judgment of God on my behalf for my sin, I now stand forgiven, and like the Apostle Paul, when he says in Romans 1.14, we are under obligation, both to Greeks and barbarians, both to wise and foolish, to proclaim to them, to share with them the gospel, to live it out before them, to tell them about it. Which then leads to the, this other remarkable thing about the vengeance of God, because only God in his wisdom can conceive of this kind of plan. The looming reality of God's judgment, you understand, is a great incentive for sharing the gospel. Because our mission is to invite people to come to Christ and to be saved. For by doing so, by coming to Christ, they will be saved. They will not only flee from, but be saved from the wrath that is to come. So here God sets Israel back in their homeland. And he's reminding them, I am going to take care of your enemies. Your mission now is to do what I have set you apart to do from the beginning, which is to be a light unto the nations. You let me worry about judgment, vengeance, retribution, and justice. I will take care of that. Your responsibility is to be my people, bear my name, and through you I will establish a kingdom that is unshakable, that is unbreakable, that is invincible. God is a just and righteous judge. And because of that, we have incentive to love our neighbor, to pray for them, because he has been merciful and gracious to us that while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. And having brought us into a people, having brought us into a community, has given us a purpose, a mission, to be light and salt. And so here, we are not to be concerned about getting even or getting justice. That's a yoke that we were never meant to bear. It's a yoke that Jesus never called us to carry. It's too heavy. It's idolatrous, and it's sinful. As the vision continues, verses 7 and 8, the satisfaction of God's vengeance puts his spirit at rest. As the, the vision, this first part, at least in uh, chapter 6, comes to a close, when the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. And so they patrolled the earth. And then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. 
The impatience of the strong horses here tell us that the agents of God's judgments, they are eager to carry out his mission. They're, they're not lackadaisical about this, but they are also under his authority, and they do not go without his permission. They do not answer the people's cry for mercy until God says it is time to answer their cry for mercy. And if we're honest, we have a problem with that. And I think part of the problem is that we have a Western mentality. By that I mean we like things done quickly. We like our wars over quickly. We like our dinner served quickly when we go to a restaurant. We like our cars to start when they're supposed to start. We like getting our paycheck when we're supposed to get our paycheck. Like we want things done when they should be done, if not before, and then sooner than that. But Zechariah belongs to a people who have a mindset that it takes years, decades, sometimes centuries for things. They have the long view in mind. I've talked with people who have spent time, in, and maybe you have as well, who have spent time in other parts, in, in the Middle East and in the Eastern parts, and they talk about their ancestors and they talk about their countries and things like that that go back centuries. And they, they have just prolonged this sense of expectation. That, I think, is what's going on here as well. We want justice done immediately, God says, soon. If you remember, I was a kid, and I would ask my parents, you know, when are we going to get there? Soon. Soon. I had no idea how long soon was, but I began to resent that word because it was always longer than I was willing to wait. But sometimes, soon means having to wait. And we are reminded again in that same section in 2 Peter 3, where he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So the delay in God's mercy is not due to God's impotence in the face of evil. The delay, actually, is a function and an expression of His grace, whereby God gives men and women time to reach repentance, how do they do that? Through the people that he has set apart for himself to be salt and light, who leave vengeance, retribution, and justice in his hands while they love their neighbor as themselves by sharing the gospel, warning them of the day to come, but not engaging in that vengeance themselves, simply displaying what God has given to them. And there's a real sense, then, when you look at Israel's return to the exile, that really is a metaphor for what it means to live in the world in which we live. We have been set apart, but we live in the midst of a culture that is still unholy. We live in a culture that continues even to exert its influence on us and sometimes the way that we think and act. Israel returned to Jerusalem is free, but they're not free. And so are we. 
We are free from having to bear the judgment of God against our sin. Christ has already taken care of that. But we are not yet fully free in the sense that we are still subject to sin and its consequences, sin and its temptations, sin and its effects. We still commit sin. That's why we have a time of confession. That's why we have seasons like Lent to remind ourselves that while we are free, we still struggle with our own inability to obey perfectly. So we rely on the perfect obedience of Christ. And the cross then tells us that one day, sin will indeed suffer its ultimate and final and total defeat, which has already been put into effect. In a similar way, Zechariah's vision encourages Israel that while they are still, in a sense, under the thumb of Persian rule, the fact that Babylon has fallen to the Persians is an indication that Persia will fall. In fact, every nation that opposes God and his church will fall. So the reports of the demise of the church are a bit hasty. That God will always reserve for himself a remnant, a people who bear his name through whom he will establish his reign and rule. The 70 years for Babylon have been completed. God has kept his promise and he has returned the people to their land. All of the, the previous visions emphasize that God would bring peace to the nation of Israel within the nation of Israel. But now in this last two verses of this vision, God promised to extend that peace beyond the borders of his own people to the entire world. Because God will on a day of his own choosing, finally, fully, and once for all, bring the full weight of his sovereign vengeance, retribution, and justice upon all evil, evildoers, and sin. One scholar describes the, the peace that arises as a result of this as follows. He says, The Lord and his servants can finally rest because the creation now experiences the peace for which God originally created it. Ever since the fall of man, creation has groaned and longed for its restoration. This vision draws to a close with a sense of finality. God is in his heaven, all is right in the world. Not just in word alone, but in reality. And the Lord declares that in verse 8. Behold, those who go toward the north country, speak of the chariot, have set my spirit at rest in the north country. And this is a reference to the the final, full, and total defeat of Israel's enemies, which will bring them rest, victory, and security in the land. Another scholar writes that this is a panoramic view of the world to come. The setting of God's spirit at rest is the dawning of the eternal Sabbath. The holy war is over. Judgment has been rendered. The nations that plundered Israel have been plundered. And now the Sabbath has begun, and after judgment, rest. But we don't have to wait until that day to experience that rest. That's the good news. Because the end of this vision here brings to mind the opening verses of a letter that is written in the New Testament, the letter to the Hebrews, where the author, speaking of Jesus as the exact representation of the Father, radiance and fullness of the Father's glory, writes these words. Of Jesus, he writes, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, 
he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The only way Jesus could sit down as high priest is if there is no further sacrifice for sin needed to be made. And the only way that Jesus could make purification for sins is by bearing the full weight of God's sovereign vengeance, retribution, and justice, which he promised to bring upon Israel's enemies, but he brought upon his son. So that by his death in our place, Jesus satisfies the vengeance, the retribution, and the justice of God. That's why he sat down. So there's no need for another sacrifice. There's no need for us to take vengeance into our hands. There's no need for us to seek retribution. There's no need for us to seek ultimate justice on a macro level because Jesus has satisfied all of that for us so we can rest in his rest. God the Father can rest. The Holy Spirit can rest. How do we know sin will be defeated? How do we know sin will be conquered? How do we know the enemies of God will be judged? We have the cross. We have the empty tomb. We have Christ's promise that he will return. So be patient, therefore, until the coming of the Lord. Do not grumble against one another, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that um, your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. And that uh, as high as the heaven are above the earth, so high are you above us. It is hard for us to conceive of vengeance and retribution and justice as something that belongs to you and that we are not to seek. And yet your word says that if we trust you for these things, you will indeed make things right and have begun to put things right. The cross is the evidence of that. Your word is further assurance of it. We pray also now for the witness of your spirit to help us re remember and to do the things that you have called us to do, to be salt and light, a people who bear your name through whom you will establish your reign and rule, both here and forever. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.